she either knew or should have known uh, that she was placing classified information in a way that exposed it to uh, being hacked. Wow. What kind of America well, hater would do that? From Pacifica Radio in lovely Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI News Watch, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, the Green Renaissance Network, 94.1 FM. In 102.9 FM, WLPP in Palinville, New York. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR, Public Reality Radio. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us again today. Um, uh, a few days ago, we reported that the U.S. Department of Justice, now led by the uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, had decided to flip sides in the DOJ's long-running case against the state of Texas's photo ID voting restriction law, which had been found racially discriminatory several times by the Department of Justice itself uh, before the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013, and then it was found uh, racially discriminatory by a federal court which found that the Republican-controlled state of Texas meant to purposely uh, discriminate with this law to keep voters, legal voters, from being able to cast their vote, legal voters of a certain shade, a certain color, if you get my drift. That finding was upheld, for the most part, by the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is regarded as the most conservative court in the land. But while agreeing that the law had a racially discriminatory impact on minority voters, that very right-wing court was not completely convinced that the law was passed with uh, by Republicans with that intent. So they sent that part of the case back down to the lower courts for a rehearing, And that rehearing took place on Tuesday in federal district court in Corpus Christi, Texas, with the DOJ now having decided against fighting the law uh, that they had uh, for so long fought against, that the previous administration's DOJ had long fought against and had successfully won in uh, in court. So uh, how'd that hearing go for the great state of Texas and for the DOJ now that they are on the other side of the case from the private uh, plaintiffs here, like the NAACP, which is still fighting uh, to kill that law entirely and to hold the state accountable 
for their for a purposely racist law. Well, the news from the courtroom this week uh, seems to be very, very encouraging on a number of levels. We'll be joined momentarily by Mark Joseph Stern, who was in the courtroom for this hearing on Tuesday. And this case is uh, likely to have national impact. Because, you know, whether you like or hate this current administration or not, uh, we're all going to have to vote again to be able to do anything about it. Uh, And so uh, Mark Joseph Stern, who was in the courtroom, uh, he'll be here shortly to explain what happened in that courtroom. And it was kind of amazing. He'll offer up some of uh, what I think is uh, some pretty good news. And I I think we could all use some good news right around now, so you won't want to miss that conversation coming up. In the meantime, on our most recent Green News report, we noted that emails finally released after years of public records requests from the office of uh, the former Oklahoma Attorney General and EPA enemy, now turned uh, EPA Director Scott Pruitt, Uh, that those emails had begun to be released by the state of Oklahoma after a court had ordered them to do so. And while uh, revealing, as expected, Desi Doyen, I think everyone expected that those emails would uh, show Scott Pruitt's collusion with the oil and gas industry. Oh, yeah, it was it it delivered as promised complete collaboration and cozy relationship and basically him asking, how can I help you? Exactly. So it revealed that and we all kind of knew that was coming. And there are still more emails that are coming along those lines. But uh, with those close ties that it showed, uh, it, it also revealed something else. As uh, Fox 25 KOKH had reported uh, about a week or so ago, the Oklahoma Attorney General's office confirms former Attorney General Scott Pruitt used a private email for state business. That information came a week after Fox 25 revealed that the emails that appeared to be sent from uh, uh, Pruitt's private email account. Now, open government advocate and media professor Dr. Joey Senat is uh, quoted here in the uh, Fox 25 report saying that the law regarding open records indicates that private accounts cannot be used to shield government officials from transparency laws. Senat said uh, one of the weaknesses of Oklahoma's law on open records relies on trusting public officials that they have conducted appropriate searches of private accounts. Is this all ringing a bell to anybody here? <laughs> emails, uh, it's, emails. it's not illegal to use a private email account, uh, but when somebody makes a public record request, that private email must be searched. And in Oklahoma, you got to just trust the person uh, who has that private email account. In this case, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, who is now the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. We're now relying on him and, and and his word, or at least we have been up till now, uh, to know whether there was anything in those private email accounts. The revelation is in direct conflict with Pruitt's written and oral testimony. And here's why it's even more important. He gave written and oral testimony before the Senate Environmental and Public Works Committee during his confirmation process. And during that process... Uh, Pruitt told lawmakers that he had never used a private email for state business. Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, asked Pruitt directly, quote, have you ever conducted business using your personal email accounts? 
non-official Oklahoma Attorney General email accounts, text messages, instant messenger, voicemails, or any other medium. Pruitt said, I only use my official OAG, the Office of Attorney General, email and government-issued phone to conduct official business. Apparently, Scott Pruitt lied directly to Congress about his use of a private email server. Now, so, you know, I, you know, I, I think I joked uh, yesterday that uh, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans used to want to lock people up for that sort of thing. Well, you know, uh, you know who's really old enough to remember that sort of thing? Of course, it you know took place last year with, you know, during the campaign and Hillary Clinton and the outrage from Republicans. But you know who's really old enough to remember a lot of stuff? John Dingell of Michigan, former congressman. He's now 90 years old. He only retired in 2015. Uh, as the longest serving congressman in history, having served 59 years in the U.S. House. Well, 90 year old John Dingell is still tweeting and he's got a great Twitter account, by the way. Uh, yesterday he tweeted. Still not sure if I'm doing hashtag TBT correctly. Do you know what TBT stands for? Does I do. What does it stand uh, well, for, Brad? That stands for Throwback Thursday. Is that right? Throwback yes, Thursday. Throwback right? Thursday. It's when you go back to Thursdays. It's well, it's when you, you go, back to, to go back to, to go back. You post old pictures or whatever. So, still not sure if I'm doing Throwback Thursdays correctly, but it feels right. Hashtag TBT. And he quoted Mike Pence from September of 2016 saying, uh, uh, real Donald Trump and I commend the FBI for reopening an investigation into Clinton's personal email server because no one is above the law. Well, that's nice. Uh, that was uh, in September of 2016, and uh, both Donald Trump and Mike Pence were very happy that the FBI was reopening their investigation at the time for a moment at least, uh, into uh, her, the use of her private email server when they found those additional emails on Anthony Weiner's uh, email server. And it turned out there was nothing there. All the emails were the same things that we had seen previously. There was uh, nothing criminal. No charges were brought. But obviously, it had a huge effect on, uh, on the election. Well, uh, Mike Pence was outraged about it then. Maybe not so much today. According to the Indianapolis Star, Vice President Mike Pence routinely used a private email account to conduct public business as governor of Indiana, at times discussing sensitive matters and homeland security issues. Emails released to Indy Star in response to a public records request show that Mike Pence, who's now the vice president, did I mention that? Mike Pence communicated via his personal AOL account with top advisors on topics ranging from security gates at the governor's residence to the state's response to terror attacks across the globe. In one email, Pence, uh, Pence's top state homeland security advisor relayed an update from the FBI regarding the arrests of several men on federal terror-related charges. Cybersecurity experts say the emails raise concerns about whether such sensitive information was adequately protected from hackers, given that personal accounts like Pence's, are typically less secure than government email accounts. In fact, Pence's personal account, they find, was hacked last summer. 
Furthermore, they report advocates for open government express concerns about transparency because personal emails are not immediately captured on state servers that are searched in response to public records requests. Man, Mike Pence's office in Washington said in a written statement uh, on Thursday in response to all of this, uh, quote, similar to previous secretaries of state, I mean governors, uh, during his time as secretary, I mean governor of Indiana, Mike Pence maintained a state email account and a personal email account. As governor, Mr. Pence fully complied with federal law and State Department rule, I mean Indiana law regarding email use and retention. So, you know, he followed the law. By the way, so did Hillary Clinton. Indiana governor, uh, the new Indiana governor who has taken Mike Pence's place since he became vice president, uh, the Indiana governor, uh, Eric Holcomb, his office released tens of thousands of, I mean, I'm sorry, 30 pages. That's it. 30 pages from Pence's AOL account but declined to release an unspecified number of emails because the state considers them confidential and too sensitive to release to the public, and I guess we just have to trust them on that. Sound familiar? Hillary Clinton's office, I mean Mike Pence's office, said the campaign hired outside counsel as he was departing as governor to review his AOL emails and transfer any involving public business over to the state. Exactly what Hillary Clinton did. Well, but I guess we uh, should just trust him, right? Just trust him. Funny they didn't trust Hillary Clinton when it came to that. Um, when it comes to Mike Pence, I guess, lock him up. Lock him up. Lock uh, Scott Pruitt up. Lock them all up. That's what they wanted, right? P uh, Pence had fiercely criticized Hillary Clinton throughout the 2016 campaign, had accused her of trying to keep her emails out of public reach and exposing uh, classified information to potential hackers. Well, in this case, we know that Mike Pence's emails were, in fact, exposed to hackers. His email had been hacked. Uh, there has been uh, what a Pence accounts was actually compromised last summer by a scammer who sent an email to his contacts claiming that Pence and his wife were stranded in the Philippines and in urgent need of money. Now, Indiana law requires all records dealing with state business to be retained and available for public information requests. Emails exchanged on state accounts are captured on state servers, which can be searched in response to those requests. But any emails uh, on Pence's AOL account, well, we've just got to rely on, on Mike Pence. Take his word for it. Cybersecurity experts and government transparency advocates said Pence's use of a personal email account for matters of state business, including confidential ones, is surprising given his attacks on Clinton's exclusive use of a private of a uh, of a private email server. On NBC's Meet the Press back in September, just after uh, I think this was right after Comey had announced that the uh, FBI Director James Comey was going to be reopening the investigation. Mike Pence was asked on Meet the Press by Chuck Todd uh, how he felt about all of that. And he compared uh, Hillary Clinton to Richard Nixon. It's just more evidence that uh, Hillary Clinton is the most dishonest candidate for president of the United States since Richard Nixon. What's evident from 
the notes, what's evident from uh, all of the revelations over the last several weeks is that Hillary Clinton uh, operated in such a way to keep her emails and particularly her interactions while Secretary of State with the Clinton Foundation uh, out of the public reach, out of public accountability. And with regard to classified information, she either knew or should have known uh, that she was placing classified information in a way that exposed it to uh, being hacked and, and being made available in the public domain, even to enemies of this country. She either knew or should have known. Sorry about the music there. That was Mike Pence was at a, uh, a presidential rally when he was asked about that September 3rd of, uh, of 2016, decrying Hillary Clinton for doing exactly what he knew he had done at the exact same time. And he knew uh, by then that his email had been hacked, unlike Hillary Clinton's. The hypocrisy here is, uh, well, I was going to say it's unbelievable, but we better start believing it because this sort of thing is happening and it is happening a lot. Of course, as Governor Pence oversaw Indiana State Police, National Guard, Department of Homeland Security, all of which collaborate with federal authorities and handle sensitive information, and Pence continues, by the way, to fight in state court to conceal the contents of emails involving uh, his decision to join a 2014 lawsuit challenging then-President Barack Obama's executive order on immigration. So that was state business, and he is uh, fighting that state business, the emails from that state business being released. They're being sought by uh, a William Groth, a Democrat and labor lawyer who says he wants to expose waste in the Republican administration. Richard Painter, the uh, former chief ethics lawyer for uh, George W. Bush, uh, said that it's bothersome that Pence is only now, he is only now transferring his, his AOL emails over to the state so they can decide uh, what uh, you know? What meets these uh, public records requests or not? Uh, so, uh, just amazing. The hypocrisy is extraordinary. Lies to Congress, uh, you know, about all manner of things. Uh, I think we've counted now about uh, seven different uh, folks who lied to, who appear to have lied to Congress during their testimony. Cabinet officials who were nominated and then lied to Congress uh, throughout the questioning that Republicans don't seem to give a damn about. Is there no lie too large to tell to hang on to power? Uh, well, apparently not in the state of Texas, at least uh, according to what we have found in this uh, long running, uh, uh, <laughs> this long running case down in Texas. And the hearing in this case, the remarkable hearing that happened this week. We'll get to that and more on the broadcast straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. 
Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Back in early 2007 at... The Brad blog. Yes, this is how long we have been covering this specific case. Uh, back in 2007, we were reporting on uh, on the Democrat in the state's uh, state legislature in the state Senate who was heroically fighting against all odds to block a discriminatory voting bill that Republicans were desperate to pass in the state house uh, at the time state democrats in the texas legislature had held just enough seats to block the bill in the senate but only if all of their members were able to vote against it from an ap report that we cited back at the time in in may of 2007 against his doctor's advice a stooped and feeble senator mario gallegos arrived at the state capitol each day just to make sure the senate does not take up a bill that would require voters to produce certain very specific types of id at the polls and when the rigors of the job start to wear on the houston democrat whose body is rejecting a liver transplanted four months ago He retires to a hospital-style bed donated by a Republican colleague in a room next to the Senate chamber. From there, he can be summoned at a moment's notice should his vote be needed. In a life-and-death drama playing out under the Capitol Dome, Gallegos is putting his health at risk to block a measure that he and others say could prevent minorities and the elderly from taking part in elections in Texas. That was back in 2007. And the heroic efforts of State Senator Gallegos in Texas, that worked to hold off the Republican voting restriction that year. But eventually, after Republicans won more seats in the legislature, they were able to pass the restrictive photo ID bill, despite evidence that it could block as many as 600,000 legally registered voters in Texas. And I should add, disproportionately Democratic-leaning Texas voters from being able to cast their vote at all and potentially. Potentially more than a million eligible voters uh, could be blocked from voting in Texas under this law. Gallegos, by the way, finally died in 2012, but he was a hero, Uh, you know, close to death, moving from a hospital bed into the chamber to to block this vote back in 2007. Now, when Texas Republicans finally had the votes to pass its law in 2011, It was quickly blocked by both the U.S. Department of Justice and uh, federal appeals court, uh, 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 federal appeals court panel under the Voting Rights Act, which at the time had required states like Texas with a long history of racial discrimination at the polls to obtain preclearance from the federal government for all voting related laws. And back then, using the state's own statistics, their own data, the government found that the law was discriminatory against, among others, Hispanic voters in the state of Texas. So it was blocked. 
But then the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, removing Texas and all jurisdictions from the list of those who had to get federal permission for instituting new voting laws. So it immediately, within hours of the Supreme Court's ruling in 2013 that gutted the Voting Rights Act, Texas immediately reenacted that discriminatory photo ID voting restriction law. That law was, of course, then challenged in court for years by private plaintiffs like the NAACP, as well as the U.S. Department of Justice. After a full trial on the merits of the law back in, I think we're up to now, 2014, uh, the law was struck down by a federal judge in Texas finding uh, who found the law to be purposefully discriminatory and a violation of which was a voting rights uh, voting rights act violation and of the US constitution a federal appeals court the most conservative court in the land uh, agreed that the law was discriminatory and a violation of law but it sent the case back down to the federal judge to determine if the law was purposefully discriminatory if it was passed with discriminatory uh, intent uh, texas could be in big trouble if so, Texas could be placed back under that pre-clearance regime requir requiring them to receive federal approval for all new voting laws. That federal court, uh, that, that hearing over intent versus impact, uh, that federal court hearing took place this past week in Texas before the same U.S. District Judge, Judge Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos, uh, who found the law, SB 14, back in 2014, to be an, unquote, an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote with an impermissible discriminatory effect against Hispanics and African Americans and one that was imposed with an unconstitutional discriminatory purpose that also constituted an unconstitutional poll tax, she found. But for the, for the first time, uh, in all of these uh, the years that this law has been challenged in courts, this week during the uh, most recent hearing, there was a twist. As Mark Joseph Stern, who was in the courtroom for the hearing, reports over at Slate, the United States Department of Justice and the state of Texas are together at last. On Tuesday morning, attorneys representing the DOJ and Texas walked into the federal courthouse here united against challengers to the state's draconian voter ID law. Under Barack Obama, he writes, the Justice Department argued in support of the plaintiffs, asserting that Texas's voter ID law violated both the Voting Rights Act and the U.S. Constitution. But now, with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who has supported gutting the Voting Rights Act, heading the agency, the DOJ has reversed course, abandoning its position that the Texas law was enacted by the state's Republican-dominated legislature with a discriminatory purpose. The Justice Department, in other words, has stopped asking the court to strike down the law and has started asking the court to dismiss litigation against the law altogether. So how did that work out uh, last Tuesday? Joining us with what appears to be some very encouraging news from that hearing is Mark Joseph Stern from Slate, where he reports on legal and LGBT issues. Welcome back to the broadcast, Mark. Thanks so much for having me back on. Uh, now, you were here just, uh, I think it was a week or so ago, with some other encouraging news from the courts at the time concerning a federal appeals court uh, that had upheld the assault weapons ban in Maryland, a Supreme Court death penalty ruling. 
But I had to bring you back after uh, reading your fantastic coverage of what happened in Texas in this photo ID case uh, over the past week, wherein you write that the hearing should give opponents of the Texas law great cause for optimism. Mark, I could use some optimism again today. Uh, so let's uh, let's first talk about uh, about this uh, newly flipped position uh, by the DOJ. How I want to find out how that went. They had asked about a week or so ago for this hearing to be delayed uh, after they had decided to flip sides on it with the new administration so that they could get their act together, I guess. Uh, but but um, Judge Ramos refused to delay uh, as the private plaintiffs were eager to move forward, this case has been in court for years, as I described. So how did the DOJ do in taking the other side of this case for the first time ever? What did they argue and uh, how effectively did they make their case, Mark? Uh, well, they did not argue very effectively, as I'll uh, explain in a moment. But I think it's just important to sort of walk through the the posture of the case up to now. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, you know, the uh, Justice Department had asked for a delay of this hearing that I went to. That was actually the second time they'd asked for a delay. They'd already requested and received one back in January, uh, shortly after the inauguration. So this was the second time they tried to delay. Uh, and this time, Judge Ramos said, absolutely not and went forward with the hearing. Uh, that delay tactic is absolutely part of the Justice Department's overall strategy. And let me lay uh, that out for you. Basically, the Justice Department is united with Texas, as I wrote, in preventing or trying to prevent the court from ruling on discriminatory intent. As you said, the court already ruled on discriminatory impact and discriminatory intent. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the decision on discriminatory impact, but sent the case back down to Judge Ramos for further hearings on discriminatory intent. And why is the DOJ and Texas, why are both of these so eager not to have a ruling on discriminatory intent? Because that would mean, like you said, that Texas will be back under preclearance under the Voting Rights Act. The Supreme Court gutted preclearance for every state, but allowed states that are found to have discriminatory intent in targeting minority voters to be placed under it still. Uh, and so the game here is to try to delay and delay and delay, draw out the hearings and prevent the judge from reaching a ruling. So here's what the Justice Department said on well, Tuesday morning. Uh, oh, sorry? Uh, no, actually, before you mention that, uh, so if they're trying to delay and delay, they have been delaying now this case for years, as long as they can. And they've gotten, you know, one election after another, frankly. Uh, with this law in place in one form or another. So are they now trying to delay it uh, to run this up against whatever the next election is in Texas? Or is this about delaying before the Supreme Court and delaying before they can get their uh, their hopeful fifth vote on the U.S. Supreme Court, as far okay. as you can tell? You know, that could certainly be part of it. They know they'll, fail, they'll fare better at the Supreme Court with five conservatives. But the, the short-term plan is to try to delay to let the Texas legislature pass an amendment to uh -huh. SB 14. The legislature is currently considering a bill called SB 5 that would uh, inc either increase the number of IDs that voters can use at the polls, uh, or allow indigent voters or voters who cannot obtain an ID for some reason to sign an affidavit to that effect. 
uh, and then still cast a ballot. Um, there are different versions of the bill floating around, different amendments. You know, it could take many different forms. But what the Justice Department is arguing, uh, with a straight face, I should add, <laughs> is that this bill, if passed, could actually alter the purpose with which SB 14 was passed back in 2013. The DOJ is seriously arguing, along with Texas, that a bill passed in 2017 can essentially turn back time, go back into the past, and change the purpose of the Texas legislature, the intent of the Texas legislature in enacting SB 14 back in 2013. So, so this case, so to be clear, this hearing uh, after this case uh, from this bill, this old SB 14 bill, uh, this particular case is only about intent. There's no question that, in fact, the law was discriminatory. Now the only question is, was it purposely uh, uh, meant to be discriminatory back when it was passed by Texas lawmakers? That's the only thing that this hearing is supposed to be about. And the DOJ is saying, well, wait a minute now. Uh, they're going to try again. They're going to make a new bill uh, that won't have that intent. Therefore, the original bill shouldn't be regarded as having that intent? Do I understand what they argued correctly? Yes, that is exactly correct. Uh, the Fifth Circuit already affirmed the finding on discriminatory impact, and the Supreme Court declined to review that decision. So we already have a judgment on the books holding that SB 14 has a discriminatory impact. The only question is one of intent, why the Texas legislature passed it. Not just what effect it had, but why. One would think that the intent of a legislature is frozen in time at the moment that a legislature passes a bill. That might seem like common sense. But the Justice Department seriously argued that a new bill or an amendment to the original bill will change the mosaic of the law and therefore possibly cure malicious discriminatory intent that was present in 2013. Again, actually go back in time and change the purpose of the 2013 and, bill. And, and that's you're actually, uh, I think, quoting from uh, from the uh, DOJ attorney there, uh, Gore, John Gore, the new uh, deputy assistant attorney general for DOJ's Civil Rights Division. He said uh, this creates a new legislative mosaic. Uh, paints a new picture of Texas's intent, uh, that makes no sense. I, their intent back, whatever it was, back in 2014 or, or when they originally, the, the original bill, 2011, when they passed this, that intent, you're right, stays frozen in time. So how did Judge Ramos, how did she regard that argument? Could you tell in the court? Was she moved by that? Because you're right, now that you spell it out, it makes no sense. I would describe Judge Ramos as puzzled. She looked very confused. She has been overseeing this case for years and years, mm -hmm. and she has listened to the DOJ make a passionate argument as to why it was enacted with discriminatory intent. Uh, to suddenly see the DOJ flip and to see it make this bizarre argument that Texas can turn back the clock and revise intent from 2013 just seemed utterly 
befuddling to her. She repeatedly leaned forward, sort of stared at John Gore, kept looking down at notes she was taking. She doesn't ask a lot of questions, but she did repeatedly ask Texas when it made this similar argument, basically, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) She uh, obviously understood that this argument does not make sense. She treated it very, very skeptically. You know, there was a group of attorneys attacking the law, representing the NAACP, uh, the Campaign Legal Center, and some other progressive groups uh, who spoke for a long time, and she asked very few questions of them. But when Texas spoke and when the Justice Department spoke, she did repeatedly interrupt, ask very sharp questions. She's not the world's biggest questioner, but here she just wanted to get to the bottom of it. I didn't see her as a partisan or as a showman or anything like that. She just wanted to understand, is this really what you're presenting me with? Are you really trying to pass this off in court? And this comes, as you note, Mark Joseph Stern, after the DOJ has themselves spent years fighting against this law. Uh, Now they're fighting supposedly in favor of it with this ridiculous argument. Um, But I was uh, uh, our uh, legal analyst at at Bradblog.com. Ernie Canning had sent me this uh, document, 134 pages, the uh, proposed findings of fact that the DOJ and the private plaintiffs had initially filed uh, back in November in advance of this hearing. 134 pages where you've got essentially the DOJ arguing, uh, you know, why this uh, law should be uh, knocked down and why it was uh, discriminatory on purpose. Amongst the things they quote, um, let's in this uh, finding of fact, uh, Republican Party leaders and activists have tied the political success of the Republican Party to whether minority Texans vote. For example, they write in 2013, Ken Emanuelson, leader of a Dallas political group with close ties to the Dallas County Republican Party, stated, quote, Well, I'm going to be real honest with you. The Republican Party doesn't want black people to vote if they're going to vote nine to one for Democrats. Also in that same year, in 2013, Texas Congressman Kenny Marchant similarly linked the voting rights of members of racial minority groups to partisan outcomes, saying, quote, if you give the legal right to vote to 10 Hispanics in my district, seven to eight of them are going to vote Democrat. Um, and this by way of underscoring how the demographics are quickly changing in uh, in Texas. All of that, um, the changing demographics, uh, the uh, you know, all of that would seem to underscore the intent of this uh, of passing this law by Republicans. Did that material come up in the uh, in the plaintiff's case or is it something they already argued and this same judge already found in her initial finding? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the the Fifth Circuit's decision in this case uh, last summer was a little strange. It reviewed the judge's findings of fact here and basically said that they were almost all spot on. Uh, almost sort of gave the judge a pat on the back, but then noted that the judge had also um, mentioned a lot of history about Texas's history of suppressing voting, uh, specifically the voting rights of minorities, and said, we aren't really interested in history. We are interested in what happened today. So the Fifth Circuit sent this back down to Judge Ramos, uh, essentially saying, you know, you can find the same stuff, but just make sure there's enough findings to cover up the gap that's left when you cut out the history of Texas's 
racist uh, voting discrimination. Um, and so the plaintiffs uh, on Tuesday hit those themes over and over again just to prove that even without this odious history of voter suppression in Texas, 2013, people were talking like this. In 2013, people were saying, we don't want black people voting. We don't want Hispanics voting. And, and more so than that, the way the bill was passed, not just in the face of sort of seismic demographic changes, um, but passed as an emergency item, yes. designated an emergency item by the governor, shoved through all of the committee and floor rules were temporarily abolished so that this vote could be passed on an up or down vote, uh, just rammed through, steamrolled through the legislature is the term we heard over and over again on Tuesday. And all of that stuff the Supreme Court has told us can be used as evidence for discriminatory intent. When a legislature disbands the rules that way and shoves through a bill like this, uh, it, it can definitely prove to us, or at least demonstrate, mm -hmm. that there is something afoot here. There's something wrong here, and it's up to the courts to figure out what that is. Especially since uh, they have been unable to show any evidence of pretty much any actual voter fraud that would have been prevented by this uh, by this SB 14. Um, all right. Well, we 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 covered uh, Mark the the DOJ's take and their flip here in, in this matter and their seemingly ridiculous argument that oh the intent of a future bill will show that somehow the intent of a previous bill was not as bad as it looks. That was the DOJ's case. What about the state themselves? You describe. Uh, well, you call it a nifty PowerPoint presentation that the state attorney brought to Judge Ramos. Uh, wh what what did that attorney have to say, and and how did that one go over? Oh, this one was pretty incredible. Um, so so the attorney stood up and presented this PowerPoint presentation, and it included a bunch of quotes uh, alleging widespread voter fraud, uh, voter impersonation at the polls. And she started going through these quotes and this alleged evidence. And at a certain point, the judge sort of leaned forward and had this very skeptical look on her face and said, why didn't you present this at trial? You know, I had this multi-day trial, an exhaustive trial, which I think all sides agreed was very, very fair, procedural and substantively. And Texas couldn't present any evidence of voter fraud. So she said, why didn't you present this? And so the attorney had to admit, with just a little bit of embarrassment in her voice, I think, um, that in fact this wasn't real evidence. This was testimony at House and Senate committees in the Texas legislature with absolutely no proof to back it up. And so the judge said, um, you know, not with any snarkiness, but I think a lot of clarity, you know, this is hearsay. This is not court evidence. This is not something that courts consider. It does not belong in a courtroom, let alone my courtroom. Uh, and I think that the, the attorney for Texas was pretty ashamed uh, because the judge was clearly right. This is hearsay. This does not go into evidence in a trial. This cannot be used on appeal. This is just ridiculous nonsense that the state is putting forward after the fact to try to justify a racist law. Um, and at, from that point on, and that was actually about halfway through, uh, t Texas pretty much crashed and burned. 
the judge started asking more and more questions, sort of picking at the uh, alleged evidence, asking where did this come from, you know, who exactly is saying this. Um, and then when the plaintiff's attorney stood up uh, for rebuttal, they just tore Texas apart. It was almost painful to watch. Uh, Texas did a terrible job. They clearly thought that because the DOJ was on their side, um, they wouldn't need to present their, uh, their best case or put their best foot forward. Um, and they just floundered pretty much the entire time. Mark, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, sit tight. I want to uh, take a quick break here because I want to come back uh, with more on this to get an idea of the plaintiff's argument here. And specifically because the state of Texas uh, was actually trying to blame Democrats for this law in some respect. So that and uh, why this case means a whole lot, actually, not just to Texas, but the whole country. That's uh, straight ahead with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. Don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. Yes, they are. Welcome back the to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com talking about this remarkable hearing uh, in this uh, long-running Texas photo ID voting restriction case. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com was in the courtroom uh, this past week in this federal courtroom where they're trying to uh, determine... Well, really determine again whether this law was passed by Texas Republicans, uh, if it just happened to have the impact, if it just happened to be uh, discriminatory or if it was discriminatory on purpose. If so, uh, there are much bigger potential penalties for the state of Texas. And the hearing was also remarkable because uh, the Department of Justice, after fighting against this law for years and years, is now essentially fighting in favor of this law, along with the state of Texas, now that Donald Trump is president and Jeff Sessions is the attorney general. So um, there was one point where uh, you report, Mark Joseph Stern, that uh, the, the state attorney actually tried to blame Democrats for the fact that the law was found discriminatory. Tell me about that. What was what was that instance? So there's one representative named Representative Anchia, and he is um, a Democrat, um, very progressive, and he was involved in the fight to try to prevent this bill from passing. Um, and one thing he tried to do to soften the blow of the bill um, was to present an indigency uh, exemption uh, so that people who were too poor to obtain ID could sign an affidavit instead. Um, and somehow the attorney for Texas actually said that he had voted against the indigency exception when, in fact, he had personally sponsored it. (laughs) Um, And as it so happened, Representative Anchia was in the courtroom. Right. And so when uh, the plaintiff's attorney stood up to speak, she pointed at him and said, he is right there, Judge Ramos. He is sitting behind me. Ask him if you wish. What Texas just told you is materially false. 
Um, and it was really embarrassing. Wow. All of the Texas lawyers at that point sort of leaned in toward each other, huddled, started flipping through images on their computer screens, <laughs> clearly looking for something, and they just had the wrong information. I don't know if they were given the wrong information by their bosses or if they were intentionally misleading the court, but it was really bad. And if you wow. pulled something like that at the U.S. Supreme Court, you would risk serious sanctions. Wow. So uh, you're describing a boondoggle, Mark, and I want to be uh, careful here because I don't want to over uh, excite anybody that, the, you know, it, it was it really as bad as you're describing. I mean, it sounds like just a disaster for the state of Texas. Well, you know, it was, but we also already know where the judge's sympathies lie. We know that she thinks this has discriminatory intent, and she was able to guide the rulings in a way that uh, exposed the most vulnerabilities on Texas's side. One can imagine this case going back up to the Fifth Circuit and having Judge Edith Jones or Judge Jerry Smith, two very conservative judges, um, picking apart the other side, finding weaknesses in the NAACP's case. I'm sure there are some, there are weaknesses in every legal argument. Um, and so we just didn't really see that on Tuesday um, because I think the judge had pretty much concluded, well, had in, a, in an opinion already concluded that there was discriminatory intent, and here was just trying to patch the gaps that had been uh, carved in her opinion by the Fifth Circuit. Um, but at the same time, I really don't think that you can compare the, the whatever flaws there may be in the plaintiff's argument to the flaws in Texas's and the DOJ's argument. They're just in different leagues. Texas has really bungled this one, um, and, and I would frankly be surprised if they can win on the Fifth Circuit, even on the second time around, even if they get a conservative panel, they are just not doing a good job defending this law, and maybe it's just an indefensible law. Well, that's what I was going to say. I don't think it's as much uh, that they're not doing a good job as there is nothing to defend. It was a pretend... Uh, case in the first place. They were pretending there was voter fraud that needed to be protected by this these photo ID restrictions, which do nothing to stop the type of, of voter fraud that actually does occur. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Mark, because, uh, well, I want to get into, we've got just a few minutes left here, but I want to get into uh, what this may mean in the future. Two points. One, Texas is planning to pass a new version of this law. Let's say that uh, this one, the current one, is struck down. Um, if they pass a new one, do we start over from scratch uh, from the beginning and, and find out all over again whether it's uh, racially discriminatory or not? Oh, that's a very good question, and there's not a clear answer to it. Whether it can be brought into the current litigation or whether there has to be uh, an entirely new lawsuit, I suspect that the course would be a new lawsuit uh, making the point that this is essentially old wine in a new bottle, uh, that it's pretty much the same thing as SB 14, uh, and encouraging the court to just issue a very quick, solid preliminary injunction saying, nice try, but a facelift didn't trick me, this is the same thing. That would probably be the best course of action rather than trying to fold this uh, into existing litigation. The plaintiffs uh, here argue, and there are still plaintiffs, they're private plaintiffs, uh, even though the DOJ has flipped sides, you still have the NAACP, you still have the Campaign Legal Center, among others. Uh, one of their attorneys argued that uh, the initial bill, SB 14, uh, was designed by the Republican legislature with, quote, surgical precision 
to discriminate against minority voters. That surgical precision language, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, I suspect was not an accident. That's the, that's how the Fourth Circuit, I believe it was, uh, First Circuit Court of Appeals described North Carolina's election reform bill when they struck it down last year. Um, is is this all about at this point, um, you know, making it clear that Texas did this on purpose and they should be put back under a preclearance regime where they have to have all federal laws, uh, I'm sorry, all voting laws approved by the federal government? Yes, that's a very astute observation. Um, when, when I heard that phrase, my ears perked up as well. Of course, it was sort of heard around the world when the Fourth Circuit used it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly now the plaintiffs here want to get it uh, on the record in the Fifth Circuit as well. Um, you know, I, I'm just not sure what the end game for this case is. Like I said, I do think uh, that the Fifth Circuit will have to render a decision on, on whatever Judge Ramos rules when she does rule. Uh, I'm certain that Texas will appeal this back up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and Chief Justice John Roberts has already written a little note uh, last time around saying that he probably does want to review it no matter what happens. Uh, in the Fourth Circuit decision, similarly, it's a little confused now because there's a Democratic attorney general in North Carolina. Um, but I expect that that will ultimately wind up being appealed as well. And at a certain point, the Supreme Court is going to have to stop ducking this issue. You know, they ruled on a very, very uh, simple, straightforward voter ID bill um, with lots of exemptions uh, and accommodations a while back, about a decade ago. They ruled that that was constitutional. But honestly, these bills, these statutes today are a different beast. They're very, very different. Um, They do seem to be gerrymandered in a way that discriminates against minorities, Uh, you know, allowing gun licenses to be shown at the polls to vote, but not student IDs, for instance. Um, And so I think that we're going to have to get a precedent on the books from the United States Supreme Court figuring out where the line is. Do legislatures get to do this? And leaving aside the intent versus uh, impact question, just more broadly, can we burden the right to vote so extensively that up to 600,000 people in Texas alone might lose their voting rights because of one bill. Uh, It's just this big, glaring constitutional question, also a legal question, a statutory question under the Voting Rights Act, and we don't know the answer to it. And isn't that why the DOJ is so concerned now about this case under Jeff Sessions? Because bills like this, Republicans are hoping to pass these sorts of uh, voting restrictions all over the country. And if this, uh, you know, the conservative uh, appeals court has, uh, you know, found, in fact, this was discriminatory, if this all stands as is and Texas is forced back into that preclearance regime, other states can also be forced back into that preclearance regime. Other states will not be able to pass these photo ID restrictions that they are desperately hoping to uh, to pass. Isn't this bill, in fact, about much more than the state of Texas, really? Oh, yes. And as the um, NAACP Legal Defense Fund attorney, Janae Nelson, told me after the hearing, this goes way beyond Texas, uh, very, very far beyond Texas. This is sort of testing the waters for many other states, even possibly for a national voter ID bill governing all federal elections. Um, this is just the start. Um, <clears throat> so we're really at the threshold 
of this battle, even though it feels like we've been waging it forever. I'm sure you certainly feel that way since you've been covering it for so long. Um, but this is the, sort of the beginning of the big battle. What happens next? What does the Supreme Court say? Uh, and if Texas gets thrown back into preclearance, you know, Attorney General Jeff Sessions isn't forever. Even if he somehow lasts this administration, you know, Attorney General Kamala Harris in 2021 can really <laughs> crack down on preclearance. And Texas knows that. Uh, so there's a lot of fear on both sides, but there's a lot of trepidation among red states that if this sort of test litigation goes south for them, they will have their hands tied for the indefinite future. Well, all right. Now you are getting ahead of yourself with that Kamala Harris, uh, U.S. Attorney General crack. I knew Mark you'd like J- that. Joseph Stern. Uh, let me, let me, I'll point folks uh, toward, toward your piece because there's actually a lot more in it over at Slate.com. It concludes uh, having the DOJ on your side is nice, but having the law on your side is even better. Some of these lawyers have been working on this case for nearly four years. On Tuesday, they seem to they seem to see victory approaching no matter what tricks Sessions attempts to pull. We will see if you're right about that, Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, always great talking to you, uh, especially with this uh, w- what you describe as very good news. If it turns south, I'm going to be blaming you. But until then... People can find your work, of course, over at Slate.com and on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark, great talking to you today. Thanks for this fantastic report out of Texas. Ah, Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And with that, I think I'm getting out of here as well. I'm going to take that good news and run, Desi Doyen. Yes, and I am from Texas, and I am so glad to hear that that hearing went the way that it did. You hate it when Texas comes up on the show, and I blame I you for everything wrong that goes on Texas. It is not the Texas that I grew up with. It has changed. So I'm glad that this is getting finally the kind of hearing that it deserves to have. Yeah, well, we'll see. A good hearing uh, but there's a long road to go uh, with this uh, yes, su- with this administration and the Supreme Court. Um, so, but anyway, let's take our good news where we can find it and Keep get quiet. out while the getting's good. My thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, to my guest, of course, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it at any time for free at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site like iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review to help get the word out about what it is that we do here on the broadcast over your public airwaves. Um, my thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue doing what we have do what we have done now for so many years. We're we in our 14th year at bradblog.com. Uh, You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and harass me all you like on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.